If you please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 20 to 23. And it's, it's been a while, it's been uh, three weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians. And just to give a little recap, uh, chapter 15 is about the resurrection. And throughout this chapter, we'll be looking at different aspects of the resurrection. And the chief error that the Corinthian church had and that Paul addresses in this chapter is that there were some in, in the Corinthian church that were denying the fact of the bodily resurrection. They believed that the dead were not raised. And in the first 19 verses that we looked at so far, Paul gives a, a clear and, and verifiable evidence that Christ was indeed resurrected. Paul lists the people who saw the resurrected Christ. Many of them, the Corinthians would have known personally. Many of them were still alive at the time that this letter was written. And then Paul walks them through his logic, starting with the Corinthian premise that if the, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then his preaching is in vain. And he has been misrepresenting God. And the gospel is useless. And those who have died in Christ are lost. But Paul concludes this section in, in, in verse 19. He says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So we now pick up with Paul's emphatic answer to this verse in verse 20. So hear now the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23. But Christ, in fact, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. And Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with me. I can't say anything that would be of any use to anyone without your spirit. So, Father, I pray that my words will be your truth. I pray that I will proclaim these words with the power of the Holy Spirit. I will proclaim them in a way that is easy to understand and compelling. And most of all, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with each one of us because we cannot hear anything of value without your spirit opening our ears. And I pray that each one of us here will be changed. We will have an encounter with the living God. Each one of us will be changed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, as a species, we human beings, we are great problem solvers. We love to solve problems. We get a thrill when we solve problems. We get a thrill when we make a, an improvement, when we overcome some obstacle. And we're good at solving problems. However, we're not always very good at knowing what are the right problems to solve. We're very much like the Pharisees that Jesus criticized in Matthew 23 who, who strained out the net and swallowed the camel. And as a, as a result, our solutions often fail to solve the underlying problem. Or even worse, they create uh, unforeseen problems that make the overall condition much worse than it started. In many ways, our problem-solving attempts resemble, remember the old nursery rhyme, there was an old lady who swallowed a fly? Remember, as she, the song goes, she, she swallowed a fly, and in order to catch the fly, she swallows a spider. 
And in order to catch the spider, she swallows a cat. In order to get the cat, she swallows a dog. And so on and so on. Each time making her situation worse. And as bad as this tendency is in the, in the physical realm, it's even worse in the spiritual realm. In fact, this entire tendency of solving the wrong problem and our solutions causing additional problems is precisely because of our spiritual problem. See, we solve the wrong problem spiritually because we start off with the wrong premise. And what's this wrong premise? We think all people are basically good. We think that all people want to do the right thing. They just need to know how. We think the problem is ignorance, so the solution is education. The problem is poverty, so the, the solution is training so people can support themselves. The problem is income inequality, so the solution is wealth redistribution. And on and on we go, solving the wrong problem. And these solutions are based on false assumptions. They're based on a false understanding of our very nature. We assume that we are naturally evolving, that we are naturally getting better, naturally getting smarter, more ethical, more enlightened. We assume that we have the wisdom and the power to solve every problem. And eventually, eventually, given the, the right policies and the right indoctrination, we will build this utopian world. We can build a heaven on earth. And this false understanding is hardwired into each one of us. See, our natural disposition is what's called works righteousness. We have this we-can-do-it attitude. We can do whatever we set our minds to. The solution is within us. Our basic assumption is that we as individuals, we as a race, we are sovereign. We assume if there's a God, it must be me. And every one of us does this. It's not out there, but it's here. It's inside ourselves. It's not a left problem. It's not a right problem. It's not a center problem. It is a human problem. But we can never understand our true condition. We can never understand the true problem looking at ourselves. We must find the answer from outside of ourselves. And in fact, until we look outside of ourselves, not only will we not find the right solution, we will not even know what the real problem we face, what real problem needs a solution. See, our biggest problem really is that we don't even know what our biggest problem is. And once we do know this problem, we realize that this problem is something that's completely impossible for us to solve on our own, for mankind to solve. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And to understand this problem, we need to understand a little bit of theology. We need to understand a concept of federal headship or representative theology or first fruits theology. So what is this? What is federal headship? What is representative theology? What is first fruits theology? Well, it's the way God interacts with our race, with mankind. And it's seen in today's passage. Let's look at this first verse, verse 20. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, we understand the first part of this verse. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first part shows the, the clear contradiction of the logical conclusion of the, the Corinthians' faulty premise that the dead were not raised. And Paul boldly declares that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Their premise that the dead are not raised is wrong because Christ has been raised. It's incorrect. But it's the second part of this verse that may be a little confusing. And it's this second part of the verse that we want to focus on this morning. The second part describes Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
Now, this is not everyday language that we use. What does this mean, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? Well, we need to understand this concept of first fruits. So the first fruits were the first agricultural produce of the season. And scripture tells us that the first fruits are to be offered up to God. And the reason they're offered up to God is they are a representative of the whole crop. They are representative that all of it belongs to God. So we take the first of it as a representative of the whole, and we offer it to God as an acknowledgement that everything we have belongs to God. And verse 20 describes Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And we're speaking specifically of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. We see this in verse 18. It says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is Christians, those who have died And Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits, as the representative for all of those Christians who have died with faith in Christ. And as Christ has been raised, so will all of those, all of those who are united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As Christ belongs to God, so do all those who are united to Christ. We too, we too belong to God. And this representation of Christ for his people. This is key to understanding Paul's argument in the first 19 verses of this chapter. See, after I I preached the first sermon on on chapter uh, 15, laying out Paul's argument that if the, the, the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised, and if Christ is not raised, then the gospel is in vain, and if the gospel is in vain, then we are in our sins. See, after I preached this, several people actually commented to me, and they said that they didn't see the connection in either my sermon or in Paul's argument between the dead being raised and Christ being raised. See, they saw the reason why Christ had to be raised. That made sense to them. They understood that if Christ was not raised, then the gospel is useless and we're lost. But they didn't see why Christ could not have been the only one raised. They didn't see why Christ's resurrection was connected to the resurrection of the dead, the dead in Christ. And this is a good question. And in fairness, I didn't explicitly answer that in the sermon. But I think it's this concept that we see here of first fruits. The concept of first fruits, that's what makes the connection. That's what answers it. And I wasn't thinking of it at the time, but as I'm going through it now, I see this answers the question. See, the first fruits represent the whole. It has the same nature as the whole. If it's different, if it's unique, it cannot be a representative of the whole. See, the first fruit of the harvest was that harvest. If the harvest was wheat, the first fruit could not be grapes, it could not be olives, it could not be avocados. It had to be wheat. The first fruits cannot have a different nature than the rest of the harvest. So another way to state Paul's argument in the last section is if the dead in Christ are not raised, then our representative could not be raised. If we have a different nature than our representative, i.e. he can be raised from the dead, but, but we cannot, then he cannot be our representative. And if Christ is not our representative, then our preaching is in vain. Then the gospel is useless. Then we are still in our sins. We are still without hope. And the dead in Christ have perished. But again, this beautiful verse, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this is why it's essential that we understand that Christ is both truly God and truly man. See, Christ is one person that has two natures. Two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. And in his divine nature, Christ is in one essence with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. 
And it's in his divine nature that Christ has the capacity to bear the infinite wrath of God toward our sins. But it's in his human nature. In his human nature, Christ is the same as us. He has the same exact nature as every one of us here. He has the same nature, only he is without sin. And it's in his human nature that Christ is our representative. He's a representative of those who are united to him by faith. And Christ is the first fruits of those who are regenerated, who are new creations in Christ. If he is raised as the first fruits, then we who are in Christ, we will also be raised with him. And that's the amazing hope that we have. Everyone that is united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, has this hope that we too will be raised. In verse 20, it gives us the good news. It gives us the solution to our problem. But the solution has no meaning if we don't know what the problem it solves. It has no meaning if we do not know what problem it solves. And this is the reason why people can hear the gospel, can hear the most amazing news of the gospel and not be moved. That's why people can hear John 3.16 that Nathan just read for us. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And people can hear this and be indifferent. They could hear God's gracious solution to mankind's most urgent, most deadly, most unsolvable problem and be totally unconcerned. And the reason why they have no interest in this gracious gracious solution is because they are completely unaware of the problem. It's like in the days of Noah. Noah spent a hundred years building the ark and he was warning his neighbors. He's saying there's a flood coming. God is going to judge you. Repent now. Get right with God. The people repent. They didn't see any need. They thought Noah was crazy. They didn't see a problem. They continued their wicked rebellion against God right up until the time that God closed the door on the ark and brought the flood. So what is this problem? What is this problem for which Christ is solution? What is mankind's most pressing problem? What is the problem that makes really completely insignificant every other concern we could have? Climate change. Nuclear war, global pandemic, financial crisis, injustice, abortion, crime, any other concern is completely irrelevant in comparison to this problem. So what is this problem? Well, we see this problem and its solution side by side in verses 21 and 22. Verses 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, the bad news, the bad news is that by one man, by Adam came death. In Adam, this first man, all of his descendants, all of us have died. Our confession of faith that we had from the Shorter Catechism. If you have your, your bulletin, take your bulletin out. Let's look at, look at this question 16 that we had. Question 16 said, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? And the answer is, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind, in descending from him by ordinary generation, that means everyone except Christ, sinned in him and fell in him in Adam's first transgression. What this is saying is, Adam was the first fruit of, man, of the human race. 
Adam was the federal head of the human race. And the agreement, the covenant that God made with Adam was not only with Adam. It didn't only affect Adam. It affected the entire race. All of his descendants coming from ordinary generation. This means that Christ is excluded because he was born not by ordinary generation but supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary. But every other person to ever live, Adam was our representative. And when Adam sinned, the entire human race, other than Christ, in a sense, sinned with Adam and, too, incurred the the consequences of that transgression. We, too, incurred the guilt and the punishment for that transgression of Adam. And, my friends, this is our biggest problem. All the human problems both stem from this problem and pale in comparison to this problem. We, as a race, as every individual, we are God's enemies. We are on his bad side. We are guilty in his sight. We are justly deserving his displeasure. We are without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. The second catechism question that we looked at, take a look at question 18 that we saw here. He says, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate, wherein man fell? See, this further explains the bad news. It says the sinfulness of that estate, wherein man fell, consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, we don't have what we were required to have, and the corruption of our whole nature. Our whole nature is broken because of this. This is called original sin. And this is just the start of it, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Because we are broken, we sin. We have our actual own sins that we are guilty of. And here we see this extent of of our inherited sinfulness. When Adam, our federal head, our representative, transgressed God's law, Adam's guilt was imputed to us and and to those descending from him by ordinary generation. So not only did Adam's sin bring guilt, it it caused a corruption of our nature. And and out of this corruption of nature, this is where all our actual sins flow. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know because I'm thinking it too. You're thinking, that's not fair. That's not fair. Why am I guilty of someone else's sin? That's not fair. Why do I have to pay the penalty for the disobedience of Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve are the ones who disobeyed God. I wasn't even born. In fact, nobody was born other than Adam and Eve. So why are we all punished? Doesn't it sound like one of those times when you're in elementary school and you have just a few kids who are misbehaving, but the teacher punishes the whole class. whole class can't go to, to, to recess. This is fundamentally unfair. We all hate those times. Well, I think another way of looking at this, we can see how God is not unfair at all. And I used this example way back when my daughter Sarah was in third grade in Sunday school. I used it in her Sunday school class at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Blacksburg, Virginia. And this example worked very well in Blacksburg because Blacksburg was a university town. And Virginia Tech dominated that town. And the majority of families in Blacksburg had some affiliation with Virginia Tech, either as students or employees or alumni. And every resident of the town is affected either directly or indirectly by Virginia Tech. So for those of you who are, say, UGA fans, you can just substitute Athens for Blacksburg and UGA for Virginia Tech, but the analogy is the same. So let's look at the football team either the UGA football team or the Virginia Tech football team, or substitute your favorite football, college football team in there. And whether you're a fan or not, there is no disputing 
the fact that the success of the football team has a significant impact on the university, as well as the whole town and the whole region. I mean, think about all the money that comes in from a Division I university from its football team. Think about the television rights, the ticket sales, the merchandise sales, the donors, not to mention all the money that's spent in hotels and in restaurants. When the football team does well, the town does well. Now, what happens if the football team starts to decline? What if they have a few bad years? What if they have a losing record? What happens if they lose these television contracts? People don't want to watch these guys anymore because they're always losing. Or even worse, what if they violate an NCAA rule and they get suspended? They don't even have a football team. What happens if the hordes of fans stop coming during the games? They stop staying in the hotels and eating in the restaurants. What happens if the rich alumni and the fans stop donating to the university? What happens to the scholarships and the research grants that are funded by all those donations? Do you get the point? The success or failure of the football team has far-reaching consequences, way beyond the team members themselves. Now, is this fair? What if you're a professor? What if you don't even like football, but your t- the team's success affects your research budget? If the team doesn't do well, you don't get the money to do the research that you want to do. Is this fair? And we're only talking about a game. There are far more serious consequences when we look at the impact of the actions of our leaders, those who are elected to represent us. Think about it. Think about the citizens in Russia who are suffering from international sanctions. Is it because of something that they personally did? No. It's because of the actions of Vladimir Putin. They are suffering the consequences, personally suffering the consequences due to the poor choices of their leader. So Adam is our representative. He was our stand-in. Actually, I like to use the term champion. It's very similar to the story of David and Goliath. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Goliath was the Philistine champion. David was the Israelite champion. And they decided they would fight. The winner of that fight would be the winner of the armies. The armies wouldn't have to fight each other. They agreed the outcome of that battle would be the outcome of the battle between the armies. Now, was Goliath your average Philistine, right? Do you think all of them were, were nine feet tall? No. The champion is the best of the best. I mean, think about it in sports. You, you think of the heavyweight champion or the, or the national champion. They are the best of the best. So people would often say, you know, why did God choose Adam, right? Why was Adam our representative? He obviously did a very poor job. And then we, we often tempted to think, oh, I could have done better. I, I wouldn't have fallen for that. I surely would have done better. I wouldn't have been deceived by that serpent. I wouldn't have disobeyed God. But is that really true? Again, think of the, the, the uh, football analogy. right? How many of us on, were watching our college football or professional football, and we're, we're mad and say, these bums, how can they make such a mistake? Now, how many of us will actually put on shoulder pads and a helmet and get in there? We'd get killed. I know I would get killed. I would get in there. I couldn't go up against some 400-pound lineman. No. So why would we think that we would do any different in the Garden of Eden? See, Adam was the best of the best. He was the best that mankind had to offer. God didn't pick the worst. He picked the best other than Christ himself. And if Adam failed, every one of us would have failed just as bad, probably much, much worse. I believe Adam was a true champion. He was the best of the best. And it's, it's not only arrogant, it's, it's utterly ridiculous to think any of us would have done any better than Adam did. 
We may not like it. We may not think it's fair. But our biggest problem is that each one of us is an Adam. And in Adam, we all died. We died spiritually. And this is the bad news. And this is the bad news that Satan does everything in his power to blind us to, to keep us busy, to keep us distracted from this crucial fact. In Adam, we all died. In Adam, we are all God's enemies. In Adam, we are all going to hell. And this message is hated. This is a message that people do not want to hear. This is a message that will not grow your church telling people that you are going to hell because you are in Adam. This is a message that will cause scorn, that will cause ridicule, that will cause hostility. But it is a message, a message that the world desperately needs to hear. And until we hear this message, we will not know what our problem is. We will not know what our real problem is. And because, unless we know our problem, unless we know our real problem, we will never seek the solution. We will have no concern for the solution, the only solution, which is Christ, which is the gospel. Unless we know the bad news, we will have no interest whatsoever in the good news. As I often say, we've got to get people lost before you can get them saved. But the problem is, the problem is people do not want to hear the bad news. People hate the bad news. They hate to hear that they are spiritually dead, that they are in Adam, they are lost. And Satan does everything he can to blind us of this fact. And what this message does is it brings anger. It brings hostility. It brings persecution. If you tell people what the Bible says about their true condition, that they are in Adam, their natural condition, they will hate you. And it doesn't matter how lovingly, how warmly, how winsomely you try to communicate. If you tell them, it will only produce rage in the unconverted. And I can tell you, I've experienced it personally. No matter how kind you try to do it, it will bring rage. And I know many of you have felt it as well. And the thing is, we don't want to be hated. I don't want to be hated. So what we do is we play down the bad news. We don't warn people of the precarious position that every single one of us is in by the fact of our birth. We stay silent to the bad news. Now, we'll tell people the good news. We don't mind telling people the good news. We tell it all the time. But the good news is irrelevant if you don't know the bad news. So what we do is we tell people how happy Jesus makes us. And that's true. He does. We tell people that Jesus has helped me overcome all my problems in this life. That is true. He's helped me overcome my addictions. He's helped me become a better husband, a better father, a better worker. All of these things are true. We tell people that Jesus fills us with an unimaginable joy. And we want other people to experience this joy. And this is true. But none of this is controversial. None of it. No one will hate you because you tell them how happy Jesus makes you. No one will hate you because you tell them Jesus helps you overcome addictions and have your best life now. No one. No one is martyred because they tell you about how much love you feel, how much joy you feel because of Jesus. But unless you know, unless you personally know, unless you personally feel the bad news, you will feel no personal need for the good news. It will be irrelevant. So you'll tell people the gospel, you'll share the gospel, and you know what people will say? I've had this happen to me many times. I'm sure each one of you have had it. Maybe many of you have said it. People will say, that's good for you. 
I'm glad that you like Jesus. I'm glad this Jesus stuff works for you. I am really so happy for you. But I don't really have any need for that. If it makes you happy, that's great. I, I don't need that. You know, I have yoga. I have, I have, I love nature. I like playing golf. That's how I feel close with God. That's what it's for me. I don't need this Jesus. But if you like it, great. I'm happy for you. And it's frustrating. It is frustrating. But we cannot tell people, we cannot make people believe. We've been, in our prayer, we're praying for each one of us has loved ones that just reject the gospel. We cannot change. We cannot take their head off and rewire their brain to accept the gospel. We cannot do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. And what we do is we proclaim God's truth. And, in the, and the Holy Spirit uses the truth of the gospel that we proclaim to regenerate sinners. The Holy Spirit uses the gospel, which we proclaim, as the instrument of this regeneration. And he uses both the bad news and the good news. So we need to be faithful. We can't change people's minds, but we are faithful in proclaiming the gospel, all the gospel, all of God's word, both the good news and the bad news. The second stanza of John Newton's Amazing Grace says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." See, it's God's grace. God's grace that opens our eyes to our, to our wretched and, and fallen condition in Adam. And God's grace actually brings us to despair. God's grace teaches our hearts to fear. But that same grace, that same grace opens our eyes to the good news of the gospel. And by grace, our fears are relieved. And then, then and only then, will we see just how precious this grace, this amazing grace is. And we will taste the sweetness of the gospel. And that sweetness will be made so much sweeter because of the bitterness of what we deserve, what we are, our true condition in Adam is. And my friends, the sad reality is that in Adam, in Adam, each and every one of us has died, has died a, a spiritual and eternal death. But the most amazing news is that we've heard it before, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. Nathan also read John 3.17. John 3.17 says, God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned in Adam. But he sent his son in order that we may be saved through him. Verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, For in Adam all die, also in Christ, that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, shall all be made alive. My friends, may we truly believe this. May we boldly proclaim this truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we don't like to be hated. We don't like to proclaim the bad news. We want to proclaim the good news. But Father, we are called to be faithful, to proclaim all of your word, both the good news and the bad news. Father, I pray if there is anyone here who does not believe both the bad news and the good news, who doesn't understand the, the state that we are in because of our birth in Adam, that we are your enemies, that we are headed to hell apart from Christ, that if any here do not feel the weight of that, Father, I pray that you will change that now. And Father, I pray also that they will see See the sweetness of the gospel. That there is that we that we are condemned, but there is a ray of hope. And there is only one hope. There's not multiple hopes. There's not multiple ways. There is one way. 
Your son said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ alone is the only way. And I pray, Father, that each one of us here, we will pull, we will claim that, that truth. We will, we will pull on Christ. We will flee to Christ. We will rest in Christ. And Father, for those of us who are born again, who are trusting you, who are new creations in Christ, give us boldness. Not to, not to fear what the world will say. Not to want to be popular. Not to want to be winsome and only tell the good news about how great Jesus is and fail to tell the danger that people are in. Father, give us that boldness. Give us that courage. Father, we want to see you glorified in all we do and say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.